Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code LEFT at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, Democracy Now!, Grit TV with Laura Flanders, Making Contact, The Melissa Harris-Perry Show, This Week in Blackness, and The Tom Hartman Program. The Black Lives Matter movement has put a spotlight on real-world racism in our supposedly post-racial society, and part of that is a challenge to corporate media's narrow and negative portrayals. But the face of black people in the conversation is overwhelmingly male. It might surprise some, therefore, to realize that the same phenomena that weigh on black men and boys, things like aggressive policing and the school-to-prison pipeline, also affect black women and girls, which makes it all the more significant that proposed policy responses, things like Barack Obama's My Brother's Keeper initiative, leave those women and girls out. A new report seeks to change that conversation. It's called Black Girls Matter, Pushed Out, Over-Policed, and Under-Protected. Its lead author is Professor Kimberly Crenshaw. She's co-founder of the African-American Policy Forum, on whose advisory board I serve, and director of the Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies at Columbia Law School. She joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Kimberly Crenshaw. Thanks for having me, Janine. Well, what were some of the immediate spurs to produce this report? What's the contribution, or you might say intervention, that you're looking to achieve here? Well, the report actually has somewhat of a long genealogy, and we're fortunate that it's come out at a time where its relevance seems perhaps even more obvious than when we started thinking about it. This was a topic that my co-authors and I We're talking about about four years ago when we tried to pull together a group of women, formerly incarcerated women, women who worked on behalf of women and girls who were involved in the criminal justice system, just to begin to articulate some of the challenges that face black women in particular and make them more vulnerable to incarceration. And we uncovered two things. One was that there were some risks that were similar and some that were distinct, and we needed to have a conversation about how black women were situated with respect to supervision, surveillance, and incarceration. But the second thing, and this was the most surprising thing, was even those women who had been formerly incarcerated or were working with women who were at risk felt that the conversation was in some ways a backdoor conversation, one that they weren't fully comfortable telling their colleagues that they were engaged in, one that might put them in the light of some of their allies in a negative light. And so it was clear to us that, number one, we needed to have more conversations, more research, more awareness, more policy intervention, but we also needed to do so in a way that allowed people to feel as though the conversation about women was perfectly legitimate within the parameters of how we think and talk about the overall agenda around racial justice. So we started with a conference on women, race, and criminalization, and out of that came the recognition that many of these patterns and pathways really began at school with institutional policies that either pushed girls out of school, made them marginal within school, or actually became the doorway from which they went directly into the juvenile justice system. Well, I'm going to ask you about the content and some of the stories, but I just want to to clarify, you're saying that some women said it was a conversation they didn't want to have that it wouldn't be seen in a good light because it would be seen as... Because it's seen as less legitimate, it would be seen as a detraction from something else? Yes. The primary concern um, around racism and criminalization is the way it impacts men and boys. The assumption was that we need to maintain a singular focus on men and boys and that including women and girls would be seen as a distraction. 
And that, of course, is all tied up in the, the problem itself. Well, how was the report produced? What, what were some of the, the specifics of, of the, that women and girls told you about how they'd been impacted by? Well, we, we looked at two things. We first looked at just what the picture was in terms of push out and discipline in schools because much of the literature that had already been circulated about the relationship between push out and longer term negative consequences had been focused on men and boys. So we wanted to know, do women and girls face similar kinds of push out? Do they face similar kinds of disciplinary patterns? And what we found was not only did black girls face racial disparity in the visitation of disciplinary measures on them, but the racial disparity, the disparity between the level of punishment that black girls face vis-a-vis white girls was actually several times greater than the disparity that black boys face versus white boys. So that was from data that took in numbers from across the country, but we also found in Boston and New York that the ratio was actually even higher than the overall national data. So that was an eye-opener for us right there. And it's not to say, you know, black girls exist, and so whatever you do for black boys, you should do for them too, because there are, in fact, special gendered issues that are confronting black girls. And this is what the focus group conversation allowed us to see. So we asked young women who had been separated from school either because they dropped out, they were pushed out, they were suspended or expelled. And they told us that they faced some things that were same and some things that were different. Along the things that were the same was, you know, the zero tolerance policies, the consequence of, you know, having a conflict with a teacher might cause you to be suspended and eventually expelled. The overall environment in zero-tolerance schools, young women said, was just simply not conducive to learning. They got the clear message that they were there to be disciplined and to be put in order, you know, not necessarily to be taught. And then they told us that they were fully aware that the teachers actually saw them through a stereotypical frame. So they said the teachers didn't trust them. They thought that they were ignorant defiant, one of the young women said, oh yeah, they saw us as all ghetto, and most importantly, they, they felt that they were experiencing double standards. They thought that as girls, they were frequently more likely to be disciplined and sent to the principal's office for engaging in unladylike behavior. So if they got into an argument or a fight or the teachers saw their responses as, as being defiant, they were more likely to be punished for these things because they're not gender-appropriate behavior. So we saw that. We saw the impact impact of sexual harassment, and we saw the impact of actually having to take care of children and how that also caused detachment from school. Well, one of the things that the activism-inspired reporting in the wake of Ferguson has pointed up is that we don't even know how many people are killed by law enforcement. There are holes in that data, and it seems relevant here, too. It's meaningful that it seems that there are some things we don't count or the data is not in circulation and that kind of keeps us from seeing it. You know, I call it just a cycle of invisibility because the framing of the problem as an exclusively male problem from the beginning creates reports and research strategies that exclude girls from the analysis. That in turn creates programs and interventions which exacerbate the exclusion of the girls and sometimes sends messages to girls that achievement in school is not particularly important for them. That in turn means that we don't really have enough interventions that we can scale up at a moment like this even if it were the case that my brother's keeper had included girls and women. What we're trying to do with this kind of work is provide the information that's necessary not only to policymakers, but primarily to stakeholders, to family members, to community leaders. So, number one, they know it's just not true that the girls are okay. The girls are not okay. The girls show they're not being okay in different ways, but they're not on the pathway to achievement in the numbers that 
they need to be. And these racial disparities ought to be as important to us as the importance of the disparities among our sons. Summer came like cinnamon, so sweet. Little girls double dutch on the concrete. Maybe sometimes we will got it wrong, but it's alright. The more things seem to change, the more they stay the same. Oh, don't you hesitate, girl. Put your records on Tell me your favorite song You go ahead Let your head down Well, as the Black Lives Matter movement grows across the country, the names of Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, and Freddie Gray have become household names. All died at the hands of local police, sparking waves of protest. During this time, far less attention has been paid to women who have been killed by law enforcement. Women like Tanisha Anderson, Rakia Boyd, Miriam Carey, Michelle Cousseau, Shelley Frey, and Kyla Moore. Well, today, a vigil under the banner of Say Her Name is being organized in New York to remember these and other women. With us today are three guests here in New York who will be attending the vigil. Uh, Frances Garrett is the mother of Michelle Cousseau, who was killed in 2014 at close range by a Phoenix police officer who'd been called to take the 50-year-old woman to a mental health facility. Martinez Sutton is also with us. He's the brother of Rakia Boyd, who was fatally shot last month by an off-duty police officer in Chicago. Also with us is Kimberly Crenshaw, professor of law at UCLA and Columbia University, founder of the African American Policy Forum. She's the co-author of this new report. The group is releasing the report today. It's titled Police Brutality Against Black Women. Professor Crenshaw, let's start with you. Lay out uh, what it is that you have found. Well, we have known that there's been a problem with police brutality for decades. And over the last years, as we've been talking about just now, uh, there has been a, a movement that has grown in response to it. And there are certain frames around which we understand police brutality. There's the driving while black. There's um, the, the entire frame around Mike Brown being seen as uh, literally a monster. And that justifies the excessive force that was used against him. What we know less about is how black women have experienced police brutality and all during this time that we have been marching around police brutality there have been a study a number of women who've also been killed and we haven't really known their names we haven't really understood their circumstances so the the, the report was basically an effort to literally lift up the names of people like Michelle Cousseau uh, or Kia Boyd to recognize that black women experience police brutality in many of the same ways that black men do, and also in some ways that are different. Many of the cases that we talk about in the report involve police literally coming into people's homes, into their bedrooms, um, and actually killing them. So it's important that if we understand that the names that we repeat, the stories that we repeat, help us think about how to broaden the demands against police brutality, we have to include women in it. So some of the interventions that are necessary extend to the ways in which women are also vulnerable to police brutality. And why do you think there's been so little attention or pub even publicity or, uh, on the, these women who've been killed? Well, I think there are a couple reasons. I mean, men in general are killed more by the police uh, than women, so there are more opportunities. But women are still killed, too, and when they are killed, they're not part of the conversation. And our argument is it's partly because the frames that we have are not frames that are gendered as female. We understand uh, police brutality largely through a traditional frame of this is state-sponsored lynching, and we understand lynching um, as extrajudicial efforts to uh, constrain and suppress and repress black masculinity. It is also true throughout history black women have been lynched. They've also been subject to other kinds of racial violence like rape and sexual abuse, and we're finding that not only 
only are black women killed by police, they're also subject to some of these same historical problems of sexual abuse. So they're, they're women that many people don't believe. They're women that are seen as vulnerable. They're women that are not uh, empathized with or seen as sympathetic or women in need. And so that in, in turn prompts a certain kind of coercive or violent response to them or an effort to abuse them knowing that no one will believe them. stones may not break your bones, but stereotypes can certainly put your life in danger. That's the message of a new report on police violence against women of color. Not only are black women, just like black men, in interactions with the police often alleged to be armed and dangerous when they're not, but even when they're experiencing a mental health crisis, black women are seen as somehow invulnerable. I heard the same thing repeatedly last week when I sat with relatives of black women victims of police violence in the run-up to the extraordinary Say Her Name protests that took place in several major cities in the U.S. In more than half of their stories, the victims were in need of help, not violence. And yet, in just about every case, the killer justified his actions on the basis that he feared for his life. Michelle Cousseau's mother, Frances, said she called her daughter's mental health facility to check on Michelle because she lived alone and seemed to be having a breakdown. Instead of help came cops and one sergeant who decided to shoot the five foot five, one hundred and thirty pound Michelle in the heart because he said he felt threatened by the look on her face. Kayla Moore was acting oddly and talking to herself when her roommates called for mental health assistance. Instead of psychiatric professionals came police who decided to isolate, restrain, and attempt to arrest Kayla, a transgender woman, by sitting on her. She ultimately suffocated to death. She was seemingly violent, said the police later. There's the seemingly violent, and then there's all this death. The stories of Cousseau and Moore and others are written up in a new report from the African American Policy Forum. The fact that black women are rarely viewed as women in distress is literally costing them their lives, the authors write. Even when they're in distress, black women are perceived as a threat. Already vulnerable, they end up victims. Several of the families are calling for new laws requiring that trained health professionals respond to health crisis calls and mandating mental health training for all police officers. It is way past time to stop the killing of women in crisis. We've reached the great divide It turns out it's where we all unite There is no earthly force that can untie The ties that bind I hear people talking about time We stand for equality and peace We stand for love and unity Unfortunately, these stories often don't make it into the major news cycle. In the 1980s in South Los Angeles, more than a dozen black women were murdered. Many of these women's bodies were found in parks, alleyways, and dumpsters. And it's believed somewhere between three and five different serial killers were targeting the South L.A. community in the 80s and 90s. One suspect, Lonnie Franklin Jr., the so-called Grim Sleeper, is facing ten counts of murder and one count of attempted murder. Chester Turner has already been convicted for killing 14 women. As these murders continued for three decades, Margaret Prescott and her group, the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders, were the few people to warn community members. Laura, you talked to Margaret. I did. She's featured in a documentary by British filmmaker Nick Broomfield called Tales of the Grim Sleeper. She talked to me about what it was like trying to get the LAPD and the city to take the murders seriously. You felt like a sitting duck. You're a black woman. You're out there. Somebody's hunting you down. You don't have the information. There are other black women out there, other members of the community who need to know what's going on. 
I remember actually seeing a, a very, very short clip on television of the announcement of, of 11 women being killed. And I immediately called up some of my other activist sisters and we gathered a group of us to go down to LAPD. And that was really the beginning of our work as the Black Coalition fighting back serial murders. We were outraged by the fact that 11 women were already victims of a serial killer in a 40-mile radius in the black community of South Los Angeles before Los Angeles Police Department even announced that there was a serial murderer loose. We went down to LAPD to find out what was going on and um, what was being done about it and why the delay in informing the community. We were told, well, why are you concerned about it? He's only killing hookers, which turned out not to be the case, actually. And even if the women were all sex workers, these are not throwaway women. You know, there are some mother's daughter, some of them are mothers, and it's outrageous to have this kind of devaluation of human life. We kept getting reports from people in the community when bodies of black women were found. Schoolyards, alleyway, the Los Angeles Times occasionally. By the end of the 1980s, our count was about 90 women. And LAPD at that time were only admitting to about 18. The number had increased, you know, to 18. Now, a lot of information was being withheld from us as well, which we learned in Nick Broomfield's work with Tales of the Grim Sleeper, his research team, they were able to dig up information. For example, we pressed LAPD to release a composite sketch, which they did not want to do. When they finally, under pressure, released it, we found out that that composite they had gotten from a survivor, a Nietzsche Washington, that had given them a description. They didn't release it for 22 years. Police say this is the face of a serial killer who's been roaming the streets of South Los Angeles since 1985. There have been at least 11 victims, all African-American, most of them young women. The sketches are based on the description given by a woman who was brutally assaulted by the man in 1988. Police believe she is the only survivor. There was a 911 call of somebody calling in where the body of Barbara Ware was found. Somebody reported a, a murder or a dead body or something. The address is 1346 East 56th Street in the alley. The guy that dropped the off was driving a white and blue Dodge van, 1TZ. What's your name? Oh, I don't say the nonsense. I know too many people. Okay, then, bye-bye. That 911 call was not released to the community for another 22 years. Family members were not informed. Some of them found out by watching television 10, 20 years later that their daughter was a victim of the serial killer. What other community, uh, a wealthy community, would that happen in? And we we're finding out that there were pockets of other impoverished areas in Cleveland, Ohio, and in other parts of the country where we have had similar serial killings of, of women going unreported and in Canada indigenous women 1500 indigenous women who have gone missing uh, since the mid 1980s and believed to have been murdered and their murders are also treated with the same kind of disregard of this hierarchy of human life where if you are a woman of color and you're impoverished you're at the very bottom and your life is seen as not worth anything we don't know all of what happened in law enforcement. I mean, come on, it's a 40-mile radius in South L.A. You have that many women being murdered. You have that many women disappearing. You've got a suspect in custody who worked for LAPD as a mechanic, who worked for the city at a dump site in the sanitation department. When the suspect, Lonnie Franklin, clearly a suspect is innocent until proven guilty. When he was arrested, they found photos of about 180 black women in his house. Frankly, some of them looked like they were already dead. Detective Dennis Kilcoyne of the LAPD's robbery homicide unit says all of these images were taken from the home of Lonnie Franklin Jr., the man suspected to be the grim sleeper serial killer. We searched every nook and cranny of this residence and the big uh, uh, commercial building that it had in the backyard vehicles, glove boxes, you know, under seats, though, everywhere. We gathered cameras, uh, videos, and all types of stuff from all over the, the property. 
We are dealing with probably decades of photography by this guy. A grandmother contacted me and said, well, her granddaughter was in one of those photos, but she disappeared. Just one day, they just never heard from her again. No body was found. She left two children behind. And they suspect that she's one of the victims whose bodies just never were found. So we may never know how many women have actually died. Over the years, since the mid-1980s, we gave out so much information. I mean, tens of thousands of flyers, teams of people out going on the strip where women worked, going in the middle of the night giving information out to people, going to different communities, standing outside of supermarkets, etc. I was at a meeting soon after the whole story broke, and a young man got up and he held a flyer in his hand that was yellowing. It was that old. And he said, my mother was a victim and she was found in Jesse Owens Park. She was a hairdresser. And the flyer he had in his hand was one that we had given out, had my home phone number on it. He had kept it all of these years. You know, when you keep something that's old and it's kind of folded clearly in a safe place, that's how precious that flyer, that piece of information was to him. He held it up as he was making his point to say, look, you, something has to be done. There has to be justice in my mother's death. The work that we're doing is really useful in that way and giving power to those whose voice had not been heard and whose voice had been silenced or who were so perhaps embarrassed at the way the victims were portrayed in the media that they were just afraid to say anything and, and come out. What would friends and neighbor and people you sing in the church choir with think? And it's that whole mantle of respectability. I had approached a, a prominent minister black minister a body was found just a few blocks in an alley down from his church and he said to me Margaret there's a moral issue involved he didn't mean that a woman was killed he meant that she was a prostitute and that's the kind of thing we have to cut through. And, and I think we are beginning to cut through that. I think there is a shift now. I think Ferguson in a lot of ways led that shift. You know, you could besmirch the character of the person who has been killed, but we will stand nevertheless and demand justice and say that black lives matter. And we say black women's lives count, black women's lives matter. So we're not gonna back off, you know, when you say, well, somebody is just some street person and who cares. We care about each and every one of them. They too are victims not only of, of a killer, but of an entire system and society that has devalued them, where to the degree some of them ended up impoverished and on the street. Today's MHP show, we discussed how President Obama is chartering a decidedly different course than his predecessors on the issue of criminal justice reform. Last night, the president took another historic step by specifically addressing the unique vulnerabilities of black girls and women. And although in these discussions, a lot of my focus has been on African-American men and the work we're doing with my brother's keeper, we can't forget the impact that the system has on women as well. The incarceration rate for black women is twice as high as the rate for white women. We don't often talk about how society treats black women and girls before they end up in prison. They're suspended at higher rates than white boys and all other girls. And while boys face the school-to-prison pipeline, a lot of girls are facing a more sinister sexual abuse to prison pipeline. 
The sexual assault to prison pipeline is a key insight and title of a report produced by the Ms. Foundation this summer. We first brought you the findings of this report right here on MHP Show back in July. Joining me now, Teresa Younger, CEO and President of the Ms. Foundation for Women, and Brittany Cooper, Assistant Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Africana Studies at Rutgers University and a contributor to Salon.com. So first, let me say thank you for answering the Black Feminist Bat Signal that I sent up in the middle of the night um, after listening um, to this talk. But were you surprised to hear the President name-check the report in this, in this epic speech? Well, I, I said, you know, when it, when it first came across, I said, he's talking about black women? Really? And then when he named the sex abuse to prison pipeline, I couldn't have been more proud because it is a conversation much like the conversation that we're having about the missing names of black women mm -hmm. and the, the missing recognition of black women, the reality of what's happening with young girls of color yeah. and how our system is perpetuating um, what happens to them and how they get involved in the prison pipeline. Brittany, for me, um, that willingness to go to a very specific moment, because you know we do we do hear African American male leaders um, do a kind of um, pedestal work. Oh, these you know these mothers of the movement who sit up here on the pedestal somewhere. But but what the president did in name checking this particular report was to talk about what we know from the research that legitimately makes the lives of women and girls different, vulnerable in a different way, not more or less, but in a different way than that of boys. Right. This is such an interesting moment for intersectional politics, right? So, <laughs> now, right? so we're using the lives of black women and girls to move conversations not only about the state of women in the country, but also about the state of black men, which is the only the thing that black feminists have been saying for a hundred years, yes. right? Yeah. That when you help black women and girls, that you help everybody. So in when and where I enter. In a, it's yeah. an Anadolia Cooper moment par excellence, right? <laughs> When we talk about mass incarceration, then we, if we talk about black women and girls, we necessarily have to have a conversation about what's happening with black men. If we talk about wage inequality, then we necessarily have to have a conversation mm -hmm. about how black men are affected. If we talk about health care, we necessarily have to have a conversation about how black women move conversations in black communities right. about health, even as they're disproportionately suffering from ill effects of lack of health care access. So it's a wonderful moment. It's such a sister citizen moment, too. <laughs> this politics of recognition. Mm -hmm. My question becomes, what is the like? Will we see it happen in the substantive policy changes? Wait, so, so this is so this I think is a is a is a meaningful question, right? So the first thing is kind of even noticing that it's happening. Mm -hmm. The second thing is to start getting to a, a moment of addressing it. So I'd want I want you know wanted to go back to the report just to remind folks in case they just were on vacation in July, right? That that sexual assault to prison pipeline. What it is when you say that when the re report reports it, what is it exactly that that, that pipeline is? It, it looked at young. Uh, it looked at young girls and women who are in the criminal justice system and how they got into that system and why they got into that system. So it reflects the fact that girls are being uh, recognized for truancy and getting uh, picked up for, um, uh, for, for a whole bunch of variety of mm -hmm. different issues and they are then getting put into the juvenile justice system. The juvenile justice system is ill-prepared to help address uh, what is going on in their lives and sometimes they're uh, recognition that they're being that they're being bad girls mm -hmm. is actually more symbolic of what is happening there could be around a sex abuse and then they get into the system and they are abused even further yes. by the system who is not responsive to the needs of these young girls right they're they're actually being punished for having been victims right and and that and repunished and then repunished yes. and so for me Brittany part of um, kind of the emotional moment that I had while listening there was a lot of kind of interesting cognitive stuff was the president repeatedly taught he talked about the sexual assault to prison pipeline he then talked about the need to address sexual assault through the criminal justice system um, he also talked about even the need to address it on college campuses not necessarily with a clear policy proposal in that moment but but changing that notion that if you are a victim or a survivor of sexual assault that you are what is bad, that you are the problem. Absolutely. Right. What I loved was that there was a, cur a curious for him lack of respectability politics here. It's, <laughs> you know, it's odd, but he really talked about structural invisibility in a way that we haven't seen. But again, this becomes the point that it's hard when you look at the condi condition that black women are facing to blame them. And, and here's the other way that then his family humanizes mm -hmm. this narrative. So finally he says, look, I live with a bunch of black women. I care about how they're doing. <laughs> mm -hmm. That becomes the 
first line of empathy and it really put the meat on the bones of this so that all of a sudden now we can say that you know if you're harassed at school and mm-hmm. no one helps you then no you don't want to keep going right. back to school mm-hmm. right. then you get to put in prison because you're truant but you know we had to have someone to be able to talk about how black women and girls are feeling and one of the things your book was so helpful to me on on this point was you said look black women's feelings matter for politics That was an incident down in South Carolina with a, a young woman, uh, actually a girl. I, I, by me saying young woman uh, is actually uh, not a, a accurate uh, description of what was happening. A young a young girl, a uh, black girl uh, at, at I believe uh, Spring Valley High uh, was uh, it was captured on video uh, in Columbia, South Carolina. Columbia, South Carolina. Um, it was captured on video of a young woman, a young lady, a black girl. Uh, being uh, uh, basically Just manhandled call her a young and lady black tackled girl from now on, and, and tackled by uh, by some some police officer uh, when uh, the uh, teacher called in. Uh, the, apparently, she had not been listening uh, to the, uh, the the request of the teacher. She apparently was on her phone or something and uh, wouldn't put away her phone. And, and then administra- the teacher and an administrator then co-signed uh, the uh, the police to be called in. Uh, and then uh, when uh, she was well, no, it was a, uh, uh, to have her removed from. The, but it was uh, a ca- it wasn't like they called the police. The police came in from outside. This was a counselor who was also a policeman. I thought I thought he was specifically of their part. Like he's he's not he's like an he officer works at the school as an officer. Yeah. Yes, uh, and, and he was actually known as Officer Slam. Yes, uh, and also I've, I've seen uh, ref- references to him as uh, and, uh, as the Incredible, Incredible Hulk. Hulk. Uh, and uh, he was brought in, and uh, she would she did not immediately uh, leave when they, when they were uh, asking to try to remove her from the room. And then uh, he basically yoked her up and uh, flung her to the ground, flipped her over, and uh, it was uh, it was violent and upsetting. And uh, everyone who's uh, mo- most people people watching it that I've seen have been like, oh, my God, this is terrible. But that does not mean that that is actually the overwhelming, over uh, uh, the, the overall thought process on this. Because apparently there's been a bunch of people who have uh, decided to uh, to uh, step up and uh, decide to say, like, that the young lady was wrong. You know what I mean? Uh, that, like, she should have been, she should have listened. And those people are Raven Simone and Don <laughs> Lemon, who are well, always people you want to well, side with. Well, no, that's not, that's not exactly what happened. Uh, Ra- Ra- Raven Simone, I actually did weigh in on this, which, uh, I, I'm gonna try, I actually, I'll just play what, what she, what she said about this, I believe, um, uh, uh if, if, if this, uh, clip is, uh, correct. Uh, hold on one moment. I'll, I'll pull that up. But, uh, yes, uh, so, like, so Raven, like, people have been weighing in on it, but, like, what I've noticed, Emily, is not even the Ra- Raven's, uh, Simone's and Don Lemon's of the world. What I noticed was the people immediately on social media, because this really broke on, uh, on Monday on afternoon. Media. Yeah, well, Monday afternoon on social media, it really kind of broke. And the amount of people that decided, uh, to speak out and, um, and say how the young lady, uh, the, the, the girl was the one in the wrong, and she should have just listened, she should have just done what she to- was told, uh, I, found really problematic, especially in, in, in a space where we've seen young black girls uh, be treated in this way, like we like at the pool uh, situation uh, yep. earlier in the year. Uh, we've seen black girls uh, are, are treated in such a horrible way, and they're not, uh, and they're not uh, centered in the conversation around brutality like black men are, and we're seeing, the, and, and then in this situation, we actually saw people basically, again, decide somehow that uh, the, the girl is wrong, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to go out on the record here and just say, I want to be very clear here. I want to be as clear as I possibly can. There was nothing that young woman could have done that could have justified her being uh, uh, basically uh, choke slammed uh, uh, over uh, a chair to the ground. Like the fact unless that she it, pulled a gun on him, had she unless she was had a sword and had already stabbed the student. Because not to be funny, and she there killed are, everyone there, in the room. There are already. other. There have been. There are violent uh, kids that have been uh, subdued because you can subdue people who even when they're being violent without actually hurting them, without actually being violent. What are you saying, Aaron? I thought that was the point of police training. Like I can have, I can, I can yoke people up and shoot people. I thought the point of military style training was so that you could do what you need to do without actually giving people more than a bruise yeah. or two. 
Right. And so, so like, so that's not even a thing. But I want to be as clear, like I say, clear as possible. That young woman, that young woman could have uh, been uh, screaming uh, uh, obscenities, just saying, just saying, "Go fuck yourself!" Like in a loop, uh, and just and just flipping out over, like slamming, uh, like the, the, uh, slapping her desk over and over and over while cussing everyone in the room. And it would still not be okay for this police officer to have done this, to have like, choke slammed her. To the ground, like it's just not. It's not okay. There's nothing that you can make the argument, and I don't understand why people keep going around and they keep going like, "Well, what about this? But what about that?" Oh, like, oh, but she should have just listened. And it's it, it plays into this whole idea that basically black folks, uh, black folks aren't allowed to actually ever not do exactly what they're being told at that moment. If you're told something and you're black, you better do it. And if you don't do it, then anything that happens to you thereafter is your fault. And this is a problem that I don't get because, like, like not listening to authority and, and, and pushing boundaries and stuff like that is considered a leadership qualities. You know what I mean? There like have these, been studies. These are things that you're like you're that are considered like a good in other things. But like black folks, once a black person is in a situation, if they did not do any and everything that they were told by anyone who's considered an authority, authoritor, uh, an authoritative uh, figure in that situation, they are now the problem. And no matter what happens to them, they now deserve it. Uh, but then, uh, like I said, uh, people have weighed in on it. Like uh, Simone, I mean uh, Raven Simone uh, decided to. I don't know why I'm doing this. <laughs> Let's move on to the next topic. Hold on, let's see if I can South Carolina deputy is being investigated after a viral video um, of him went berserk. She, he's yanking a female high school student down to the ground from her desk, and he's being assigned to other duties during the investigation. And Brian, what did you say that's happening? The FBI is now investigating. Really? Yes. Wow. The FBI is investigating. First of all, I think we heard about the story. The girl was told multiple times to get off of her to phone. get off the phone. There's no right or reason for him to be doing this type of harm. That's ridiculous. But at the same time, you got to follow the rules in school. First, let's 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 pause right there. Let's just have a moment right there. So, literally, by the way, this is on the view. I mean, or after the view. Uh, I think it's a video, uh, a video clip of it. And, uh, she literally, uh, they're showing the video of the, of the young woman. And, like, you have to see it's violent. Actually, you don't have to see it. Don't, don't, you don't need to look at this. It's violent. It's violent. It's, it's, it's unnecessary. It's something that just, it should not have happened in any shape, form, or fashion. Uh, and they're showing the clip. And as they're showing the clip, she's saying there's two wrongs. And I don't understand what you mean by that. There's, there's no, there, there, it's, it's a, it's a myth that is perpetuated, uh, over and over that there's, oh, there's always two sides to the story. There's a, I mean, like, listen, man, you might have seen that, but like, I mean, listen, like, like, there's, uh, like, if he's wrong, but like, if she's wrong too, like, no. I'm sorry. They went, once you get to the point of assault, her wrong of not using, not putting away her phone in a classroom, which is a basic teenager, like, like, like thing, is not comparable to a police officer choking her up and flipping her and dragging her out of her chair. Mm-hmm. That's just not how this works. And you cannot compare the two. There's no two wrongs in that. That is bullshit. If you think, and just like when, uh, Don Lemon, Don Lemon was having a conversation about this, uh, with, uh, Sonny Houston, uh, who had to basically school him on this because he decided that, uh, that we don't know the whole story. And Sonny Houston was like, uh, actually, do we need to, that, that we do know the story, like that one, that same lady is being, uh, uh, thrown to the ground. And she, and Don Lemon actually argued, and again, this is why, and I say I'm so tired of this dude, and I, I really wish that people would either cut CNN off or 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 some I don't know like either cut it off or get uh, Don Lemon off there. Like I don't I don't understand how this is considered still okay for him to say and do the things that he he does. And so like and, and luckily like I said someone was actually on air there to kind of go like hey you know what you need to do fall back because he needed to fall back. Like, I, like, how is it? Like, and, and again, anybody, the people who are always given the benefit of the doubt uh, are always the people that are not, uh, that are not, uh, the, the people that are actually in trouble, the people who are most vulnerable, the people, like, like, we need the whole story when it comes to this, uh, uh this, uh, uh, seeing someone being, uh, basically thrown, uh, to the ground and, and dragged. Now we, are, we don't know exactly what happened, but other times, like, people will throw out all types of information around stuff, uh, uh if it actually harms the victims in this, like, like, uh, like we found out about, like, Tamir Rice's family's arrest when, he, when he was shot and killed. You know what I mean? But like, but like, but like, no, no, we need to know exactly what, we need to know all of the information here, is what Dominic makes the argument about. And so this, actually, I believe I have the audio of that. To know more before passing judgment. Are you, are you guys? 
Oh, no, wait. Uh, I, I, do see, I, I do see that. Like, he, like that's he's making that argument that we need to know more before passing judgment on it. And <laughs> guess who's not amused by it? More before passing judgment. Are on you? It. Are you guys kidding me? I, you know, I. Uh, you know, no, we're I not kidding. To, we don't know what happened. You don't. don't you weren't sitting in the room, more. Sonny. You don't know don't she wasn't to, standing up. I don't up. need to know more. Let me tell you yeah. this. The you do need provides, to know more. As a prosecutor, uh, no, you should want to the know more. Yes, you should. Don, that the standard here is whether or not the whether the officer has to use this type of force, whether it's reasonable and. How do you know without all the information as a trained professional? How do you know without all the information, Sonny? Don, this is a young girl. This is a girl. In I agree school. with you on that. That's no right, but you don't know what you're I don't need to know. We see what happens. Yes, you do need to know. Elon, what? we're good. We're good, Elon. What is wrong with him? What the hell is wrong with him? It seems as though just the like. I I, I think almost now at this point that it's a response to the amount of pain you feel as a black person when you see this happen, that your response is like, you know, because really, like, what is the other solution? You're in a painful situation with no actual resolution. So your resolution to it is to just try, is to just try and go the other way. Because if you go one way, you're just like, oh, this is happening for hundred hundred years, and it's going to continue to happen until, well, until my children are, are teenagers, you know? And I think that's so painful that a lot of people have this, you know, this frightened, terrified response. It's almost like fight or flight, and literally a lot some black folks just fly. They run from the, what this actually means to them in their lives and the lives of their children. They run from it. It's very cowardly. And well, no, very, actually, I, I push back on that a little bit, Aaron. Um, I believe a, a, a big part of this issue is that it's it's not so much that they're running from it. It's that they have internalized certain ideas about what's considered okay, what's considered uh, reasonable. And they've internalized, and these, a lot of these uh, uh, ideas are, in fact, uh, white supremacist ideas. Uh, they are, it's the idea that uh, we must be perfect, we must uh, uh, always obey, and, uh, and the idea of us sorting it out later. Literally, even as I was growing up, uh, one of the things that my mom used to tell me, and I understand why she told me this, was that like if, if I got into a situation with a cop, don't fight, like, even if it's wrong, if it was terrible, just like, just like be quiet, do it, whatever I'm told, keep my hands up, like do that, and then like just and get the officer's badge number and stuff like that to like just survive. Like basically we've always been taught just survive the incident. And I think, and I understand why that is. I understand because like, we, like you don't want your child dead. You don't want your family dead. I get the concept of that. But at the same time, people have internalized that to such a point where now like people were literally saying about this young woman, well, she should have she should have just listened. She should have just listened. And it was like, well, no, no, that's not, she shouldn't have, like, like, that's not, that's not a reasonable critique of this particular situation. Like, and why, why do, why do, why do we have to wait and sort things out when a cop, when someone's doing something clearly wrong? Why do we have to wait to sort it out? And in this situation, this cop, like, she was in a classroom, which she apparently didn't do with put her phone away. That's not, that's not a offense that requires violence towards it. I'm on the on the individual level, like, and you're by yourself, you do what you need to survive, and you're taught that. But for you, as like, if you're if you're in the outside looking in, or after the situation is passed, for you to be like, oh, this person did something, that makes that that really that's just ter- like it, it, in the outside looking in, it's always terrible being brutalized by anyone. But you know, what I mean, but it, there's no there's no reason why because that person's a cop that we can make reasons for it. We say, you know, I know what you're talking about. You know, just don't don't do anything to the police. But that's for you to survive in that situation. But people now only use that as a rule, though. That's the thing. Like people are not like because if it was just because what really really sad about this, Aaron, was that it wasn't just white folks that were saying this. Because like you can make the argument like, okay, white people don't get it. White people don't understand what's happening. But it was black folks. That's what that I'm were talking about. That. I'm not worried. White people, white America says a bunch of stuff. I'm not worried about them. I'm more worried about that. Hearing the well, this person, well, she should and she could have done this and she didn't do that from black folks and it, like they've, that's in, they've internal they've internalized a a, a, a type of uh of, of policing and, and type of ruling over black bodies and they've now now look at that as completely reasonable like the idea that like this like no 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 she's wrong no no she should have just listened and it's like really because white folks don't listen all the time it's one of the it's it's it's, it's such it's such a uh, a normalized idea that it's a trope it's a it's a meme it's a it's a joke within uh, black culture about the about crazy white folks and they have like, an interesting story focusing on that but uh it it's just like i bet i bet that this girl would have acted differently if she knew she was going to be brutalized but I have a feeling that she had absolutely no idea that she was going to be treated this way well, because this it is, is not a rational we, way to be treated. We don't know that what she would have uh, done, but what, what we do know is that uh, we've uh, with more information coming out to find out this young woman is a 
a young girl, sorry, is a orphan. Her mom died. Her grandmother died. She's currently in foster care. And so all of a sudden, all these, well, she should have just listened. She can't be this. Oh, why, why didn't she just listen? It's like, you don't know anything about this young woman. Most times when kids are, uh, when, are doing something or they might be acting out, there's nine times that there's some sort of reason for why a child is doing something. And you know what you're not supposed to do? Choke slam the child. Because what is, what could that possibly solve? She's going to act one of two ways as a result of this. She's either going to be afraid of everybody, which is not the way you want to raise a child, or she's going to act out more because she's going to assume that that is how people are going to treat her. Neither of those are good solutions. So nothing is accomplished from treating somebody with so much incredible disrespect. It's just... Except for the fact that, like, one, it's part of the, uh, it's a part of the whole ego mentality of police officers. The idea that you have to listen to a police officer exactly what they say, tell you to do. And if they, if you don't do that, then now they have the uh, ability and the right to do whatever they need to, to you for not listening. There, there's been a lot of conversation about respect. Well, she didn't, she wasn't, uh, uh giving them, uh, uh, them respect. Well, then she definitely deserved to have her head slammed against the ground. My, my question is like, what, what, what's your definition of respect? Like, that's not, that's not a very, respect is a very vague concept. Like, it's to the point where like, again, like I, I mentioned my mom, like we, we've had conversations about this with my mom, like, especially within black culture, like you, you respect your parent, you respect, especially your mom, you respect your mom, right? And there has been conversation that me and her have had about what exactly is respect. So, like, is it that I listen to everything she says? Is it that I don't, if she says something to me, I don't disagree with her? Like, what is, in fact, the definition of respect? And I feel like in this situation, it is such a thing. You cannot decide how someone's going to be, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, I guess, the acceptable levels of violence towards someone because they, quote, unquote, didn't respect the person in authority. It's like, what what do you mean? Define, it's too, too big of a concept that, like, oh, well, she didn't listen. Like, that is not a good enough reason because like some people would say listen if she, some people would say that if she was cussing that she, even if she was listening but she cussed at the officer then that's not respect so then can he slam her to the ground then like oh, yeah. at what point the, is it the okay? shit out of her it's totally justified then This just touched my heart, and it's apropos of nothing that has to do with the hearings yesterday, but a lot of the stuff that is in the news, there have been more killings of black people by police. Uh, Well, it just goes on and on. And this is uh, just a remarkable piece. It was published over at Medium.com. I think it's Dominique Matty, and she is... Uh, a young, attractive African-American woman. And it's titled, Why I'm Absolutely an Angry Black Woman. And I just, I just want to read this to you. And just, just especially if you're white, it's, listen to this. Because when I was five, my kindergarten classmate told me I couldn't be the princess in the game we were playing because black girls couldn't be princesses. Because I was in third grade, the first time a a teacher seemed shocked at how well-spoken I was. Because in fourth grade, I was told my crush didn't like black girls. Because in sixth grade, a different crush told me I was pretty for a black girl. Because in seventh grade, my predominantly black suburban neighborhood was nicknamed Spring Ghettos instead of calling it its name Spring Meadows. Because I was in eighth grade, the first time I was called an Oreo and told I wasn't really black like it was a compliment. Because in ninth grade, when I switched schools, a boy, boy told me he knew I had to be mixed with something because I was so pretty. Because in tenth grade, my group of friends and I were called into an office and asked if we were a gang or if we had father figures. Because in eleventh grade, my AP English teacher told me that I didn't write a college-bound student, didn't write like a college-bound student, although I later scored perfectly on the exam. Because when I volunteered in Costa Rica that summer, I was whistled at and called a negrita. Because when I asked my host father what if that was like being called the N-word, he said no, it was a compliment because black women are perceived to be very good in bed. Because I was a kid then. 
because I watched from the bleachers while the school resource officer didn't let my brother into a football game after mistaking him for another black boy who was banned because the school resource officer maced my brother for insisting he was wrong because I was suspended for telling the school resource officer he didn't deserve respect because my senior year boyfriend said the n-word because I was one of two black girls in the freshman class at my college because at meetings to talk about how to attract more black students someone suggested that the school attracted a certain demographic sustainable living farming general hippiness and that maybe black people just weren't interested in things like that because my college boyfriend called me a fiery negress as a joke when he ordered for me at a restaurant because the boyfriend after that cut me off for saying he was privileged because I can't return to my hometown without getting pulled over by the police. Because when I got married, people assumed I was pregnant. Because people who know I'm married call my husband my baby daddy. Because my pregnancy with my son was plagued with videos of black lives being taken in cold blood. Because their murderers still walk the streets. Because the nation sent me a message that my son's life didn't matter. Because when Tamir Rice was murdered, I curled up on the bed and sobbed, cupping my belly. Because my son heard me sobbing from the inside because they don't care about us. Because when I was seven months pregnant, my neighbor asked me to help him move a dresser uh, up a flight of stairs. Because I'm not seen as a woman. Because I'm not allowed to be fragile. Because the nurse that checked me in at the hospital to deliver wouldn't look my husband in the eye. Because the vast majority of people won't look my husband in the eye. Because when the doctors put my son in my arms and I saw that he was as dark as his father, I knew life would be even harder for him. Because he will be regarded the same way I was. Because he will be forced to grow up before he's grown. Because strangers at the store think it's okay to reach into my son's stroller and touch him without a word to me. Because we aren't entitled to boundaries. Because we th they think we are here for their enjoyment. Because people don't think we are people. Because my nephew told me he couldn't be Spider-Man like he wants because Spider-Man is white. Because when he was four, he said he wants to be white so he can go on a boat like the people he saw on TV. Because I can't save him from that. Because I can't protect my son. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Because I can't protect myself. Because my stomach sinks whenever I see a police car. Because when my husband leaves the house at night, I'm afraid he'll be killed. So I'm, I'm reading this piece... And I, I, I am going to, yeah, it's by uh, Dominique Matty, uh, D-O-M-I-N-I-Q-U-E-M-A-T-T-I, and it's published over at Medium.com. It was re piece of it was reprinted over at Democratic Underground yesterday, which is where I found it and, and tracked it back to its original source. And Dominique uh, Matty just wrote this brilliant, brilliant piece. So I'm going to finish reading this. I, I, this is just, she writes, because, and, and it's titled, Why I Am Absolutely an Angry Black Woman. She said, because when my husband leaves the house at night, I'm afraid he'll be killed for looking like somebody. Because I worry that if I went missing, like the 64,000 other black women in this nation, the authorities wouldn't try hard to find me. Because I am disposable. Because I am hated. Because we keep dying. Because they justify our deaths. Because no one is held accountable. Because I am gaslighted. Because I have been told that by speaking about being oppressed, I am victimizing myself. Because our murders are filmed and still pardoned. Because I don't know what it means to let loose. Because doing the things that my white peers do with ease could cost me my life. Trespassing in abandoned buildings, smoking joints, wearing a hoodie, looking an officer in the eye, playing music loudly, existing. Because I'm afraid to relax. Because I am traumatized. Because there isn't a place in the world white supremacy hasn't touched. Because I am trapped here. Because the playing field isn't leveled. Because I love my skin. Because I love being a woman. Because not hating myself is considered radical. Because I've been called a racist for defending myself. Because all the major prote pro protests are for cis black men. Because I've been told about talking about the women who've died is taken away from the real issue. Because I get no break from fighting. Because everything is a struggle. Because my anger isn't validated. Because they don't care about my pain. Because they don't believe in my pain. Because they forgive themselves without atoning. Because I am not free. Because the awareness of it permeates everything. Because it's not ending. Because they teach the children that it's already ended. Because someone will assert their supremacy over me today. Because they'll do it tomorrow. Because I want more. Because I deserve better.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the Voice Memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. So I have a little bit of a story for you that is at, you know, it's at least tangentially related to today's topic. Clearly, we are focusing today on the, uh, you know, the total and utter devaluation of human life, specifically women of color, and not related at all. I just happened to go on a little fall weekend trip. You know, the leaves are turning, seemed like a good uh, opportunity to get out of the city. Don't get out of DC very much. So, uh, rented a little car, got a room in a little bed and breakfast. And so we drove down to Charlottesville, Virginia, and it was beautiful. It was relaxing. We took a tour of Monticello. That's Thomas Jefferson's old house. You know, the guy who wrote the, uh, we hold these truths be self-evident that all men are created equal, et cetera, et cetera, except for not really all men. And so at the house, you can take a tour of the house, you can take a tour of the garden, and you can take a tour of the slavery, like of the grounds with a focus on slavery at Monticello. And I got to say that for a place in Virginia with a clientele of very, very high numbers of white people, they do a pretty good job not sugarcoating the slavery. I have definitely been on tours of rich people's homes whose wealth all came from their slave holdings and it was not mentioned. So to their credit, they definitely put an emphasis on slavery at Monticello. So good for them. And uh, the way this relates to today's show is that there are a couple of stories from that slave tour that stuck in my head. And, uh, and one was, you know, the guide kind of asked the group, like, you know, getting yourself into that mindset of putting value on humans and their ability to produce, right? Like we're in that terrible slave mindset. And he, he asked us, you know, what type of slave did Thomas Jefferson consider to be the most valuable? And... You know, so imagine all the different kinds of slaves and all the different kind of works they, they would do. You got the house slave, you got the field slave, you got the workers and the cooks and so on and so on. It, what's the most valuable slave? And so I, this is what the Monticello website says. And this is basically what the, the tour guide said as well. It says, Many slaveholders, including Jefferson, understood that female slaves and their future children represented the best means to increase the value of his holdings, what he called, quote-unquote, capital. And then quoting Jefferson, it says, I consider a woman who brings a child every two years as more profitable than the best man of the farm, Jefferson remarked in 1820, continuing, quote, What she produces is an addition to the capital, while his labors disappear in mere consumption, unquote. So there you go, stated quite plainly, the most valuable slaves were women of childbearing age. And then there was a second story that needs a little bit of background. So if you're not familiar, Jefferson basically lived in debt almost his entire life, and he lived beyond his means almost, you know, in perpetuity. And he died in debt, and so his children had to auction off basically everything he owned, including the house itself, to try to pay his debts. And so, of course, as part of this auction, uh, they auctioned off about uh, like 130 slaves who he, uh, he owned at the time. So there's this one little story from the slave auction, and and the guide is talking about uh, one particular slave who is is a bit of a matriarch in the slave community. She's had many children, I think grandchildren, you know, by by this point. She's in her 50s, and uh, so he asked, you know, how much do you think she was sold for at this slave auction after Jefferson died? And people start throwing out guesses. And, you know, we're trying to do mental math, like, well, like, 
$100 back then is like $1,000 now, and uh, what was the going rate for slaves anyways? And, you know, a couple people say, like, I don't know, $100. Someone says 10 He's like, well, closer. Someone says, like, one. He says, well, closer. And the answer was nothing. They literally wrote on the for sale sign, nothing, because... Who's going to want to buy a 55-year-old woman who is clearly beyond childbearing years and doesn't have very long to go doing manual labor? So just like that, uh, she went from one of the most valuable slaves to literally worth nothing in the slave economy. So you can take that for what it's worth. Maybe you see some modern-day echoes of that old valuation system Maybe you don't. If you have any thoughts and want to share, I'd love to hear them. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad stories and wonder why we're missing we can't see past our sad stories and forget how to listen we can't see past